Good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Drew. Uh, my family and I are so glad to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting us. You know, to simply come and visit would have been enough. To be invited to preach is just a sheer gift. So thank you, Kevin and Church of the Lamb. We're delighted to be with you. Today is the feast day of Christ the King. If you're new to Anglicanism, still trying to figure out this whole thing about the church calendar, you're not too far behind on this one, actually. Christ the King is one of the newest additions to the church calendar. It was first celebrated in 1925 to emphasize the reign of our Lord Jesus over an increasingly secular world. We all know that Christmas, the, the busiest and most commercialized time of the year, is just around the corner. I confess I did have an eggnog latte this morning. It, it felt good. <laughs> Christ the King is celebrated but one month earlier. And it reminds us of the deeper meaning of the season. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I told my wife, it's Christ the King. I have to talk on politics. And she said, I'm going to hide. And I said <laughs> to my nine-month pregnant wife, I'd like to see that. <laughs> Our readings from this morning give Jesus a number of titles. Um, in our gospel reading from Luke chapter 23, we heard titles like the Christ of God, the Chosen One, and the King of the Jews. In our New Testament reading from Colossians chapter 1, the Beloved Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the body, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And finally, in our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah, the righteous branch. These are all kingly titles, each and every one of them. For the people of Israel, Christ wasn't simply, wasn't at all, a last name. It was shorthand for God's anointed king. Jesus Christ meant King Jesus, similar to Queen Elizabeth or Winston Churchill, Prime Minister. Obviously, I've been watching the new season of The Crown. For the Gentiles, particularly the Romans, the title Beloved Son or Son of God was the name given to Caesar and to no one else. Caesar was the son of the gods, himself divine, ruling the known world as their representative. And then, of course, for nearly all ancient cultures, any title involving words like firstborn was a direct reference to the passing down of power through a royal dynasty. The firstborn inherits all the power from his father. 
Likewise, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He rules over everything now. Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. He rules over everything in the age to come. You and I would be hard-pressed to find a single page in the New Testament that does not speak of Jesus in royal, kingly terms. Trust me, I tried it myself before I wrote that sentence in my manuscript. Christ is, quite literally, on every page. And yet it still shocks us to think of Christ in political terms. We prefer to spiritualize his role in our world, in our lives. The hit-or-miss theologian Richard Rohr has written a new book called The Universal Christ, in which he wonders, what if Christ is a name for the transcendent within of everything in the universe? What if Christ is a name for the immense spaciousness of all true love? (laughs) Just ridiculous. What if Christ refers to an infinite horizon that pulls us both from within and pulls us forward to? What if Christ is another name for everything in its fullness? And Roar stops there, but why should we? We're having fun. What if tigers grew on trees? (laughs) Have you all heard that song? What if all the raindrops were lemon drops and gumdrops? Oh, what a rain that would be. It's one thing to wonder. It's another to obscure reality. Roar's take on Christ should raise a number of questions for us. One being, if this universal Christ was the one, in fact, preached by the apostles, then why did every single one of them lose their lives as a result? After all, the Roman world was pluralistic, like our world today. Preaching acceptance and forgiveness alone would hardly merit being fed to the lions. Trusting in Christ is more than being forgiven for your sins. Trusting in Christ is more than making peace with your past. Trusting Christ is more than having a spiritual friend and mentor who also claims to be God. Trusting in Christ means... Submitting your entire life, that is, laying it all down, your hopes, your dreams, and your desires, giving your everything to the one true king. The apostles were killed not because they were preaching acceptance and tolerance and second chances. The apostles were killed because they were preaching a political bombshell of a gospel. That Jesus is the king. He's the Lord. The Christ. The son of God. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. I'm emphasizing this theme not to downplay God's acceptance of us and forgiveness of our sins. Only to put it into proper perspective. How are we accepted 
by God and forgiven and reconciled. Only by bending our knee to King Jesus, the only one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. This is the gospel. God has put Jesus in charge of the whole world, and he's restoring everything to what God intended. Naturally, we modern Americans bristle at the idea of one man ruling over the entire world. As the great theologian Kanye West once said, I'm talking about old Kanye now, not new Kanye. (laughs) No one man should have all that power. I've been teaching my humanity students about the progression of government throughout human history. Wake up. The most basic unit of government is the family. A group of families make up a clan. Think the Napotniks. (laughs) A group of clans make up a tribe. A group of tribes make up a state or a kingdom. And a group of kingdoms united under one ruler, make up an empire. And empires make us nervous, and for good reasons. Empires tax and enslave and colonize. Empires take away people's freedom. At the same time, however, we have to admit that empires are responsible for the vast majority of our world's greatest cultural achievements. Think of the Roman road system, one of the most expansive projects in human history. Over 250,000 miles of roads that allowed people to trade and travel and see the world. Or think of the Roman aqueducts and the clean water they provided for millions of people Not just for drinking and bathing, but also for farming. Think of the Great Wall of China. Built within a Chinese empire, connected at least, and and for the way it protected people from outside attack. So you see, empires can be good. Power can be good. You can live a prosperous and fulfilled life under imperial rule. It just all depends on who's in charge. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Christians all over the world are listening to this passage today. Isn't that strange? On Christ the King Sunday, we might more readily expect... Our readings to present Jesus in triumph and victory. Maybe a scene from the end of the book of Revelation. Or at least the Great Commission. Something like that. Instead, Jesus is presented to us as utterly powerless. In this passage, Luke contrasts for us two pictures of power. The first picture of power is of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. Look with me, starting at verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, 
He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Can we imagine anything more dehumanizing? Unfortunately, we probably can, given all the atrocities and abuses of the 21st centuries and into our own day. The strong often come to power by sucking the life out of the weak, by mocking them, silencing them, stripping them of their humanity, crushing them under the weight of their own ambitions and agendas. This kind of power requires hardly any skill or wisdom. It's animalistic. It comes naturally. It's the default mode within each of us. It's competition and paranoia and envy and hatred. It's the presidential debates, a contest for the biggest bully. The other picture of power, however, is of Jesus, the naked king, stripped of power, stripped of mobility, stripped of dignity. Look with me now, starting at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus confronts the evil of his oppressors in a subversive way by turning to the vulnerable one, by restoring the humanity of the one whom the world had discarded. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promises this criminal a new life on the other side of death, a life that fulfills his deepest longings and reveals his truest self. In a matter of moments, then, this criminal would become royalty. Jesus is a good king. He doesn't dominate. He doesn't rule by force. He wins our allegiance by his love for us. I'm learning this lesson as a teacher. There are so many things I want my students to do. But if all I do is give them assignments and orders, if I don't love them and encourage them and go to their games and write notes to them and take a genuine interest in them as precious people, they will not flourish inside or outside of the classroom. Jesus is a king who wants the best for you even more than you want it for yourself. He made you. He loves you. And he's jealous for you. 
to live into your truest self. If you will allow him, Jesus will restore your humanity, your joy and purpose and dignity. There's a lovely line at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, final book of the Narnia series. The children find themselves in the lion Aslan's country, or heaven, bounding through an endless field uh, in this great symphony of children and talking animals, cheering and shouting with excitement. And then they come to the great Aslan, who looks at the children who are just dazzling and smiling. And he says to them, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Isn't that beautiful? You are not yet so happy as I mean you to be. Especially for any of you who have fought depression, who have struggled to be happy and longed to be freed from it. This, this line evokes a wonderful warmth and longing that the happiness you so desire will one day be completely satisfied and you and everyone around you will experience your truest and best self for all eternity. There will be no clock ticking in which you are counting down, I don't have much time left to get better. You will have all eternity to live your best life possible. Lewis goes on to write, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't this the kind of king you want in charge? Isn't this the king you'd pick? If there was one man who could have supreme imperial power over the whole world, over the whole of creation, wouldn't you want Jesus to have it? Wish no more. The deed has already been done. God has made Jesus Christ the king of the universe. He is the emperor of a new creation that has already begun. As Paul says, already we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. We're not messing around this morning. We're not whistling Dixie. Any celebration of Christ the King must emphasize that Jesus is already Lord of the world and that at his final appearing, every knee will bow to him. That, after all, is what Advent is all about. The Lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Alleluia. And your baptism has reserved for you a place at the victory feast, a feast that we anticipate every Sunday at the Lord's table.
Until then, Church of the Lamb, we live in the present world with the chaos around us and the evil within us with a realistic optimism that the Bible calls hope. That God, that what God did to the crucified body of Jesus, he will likewise do to us and to all of creation. You are ambassadors for Aslan's country, paving the way for the king's arrival. Collectively, this morning, you are an embassy of the great empire. So let the same virtues of that empire be found in spades among you. Don't hold grudges against each other. Fights are normal in close relationships. But when you fight, work toward a solution. Forgive and make up. Don't compete for power among yourselves. Follow the example of our king who won glory and honor by constantly putting the needs of others ahead of his own, even in his moment of greatest weakness. Always look for the poor. Give generously to them and help them. Outdo the giving of the world around you. Show them the unique love that Jesus gives. And finally, do not despair. Keep your eyes peeled for glimpses of the kingdom around you. Encourage each other constantly. and Point out the small ways in which their gifts and personalities point you toward the world to come. You are all children of the king, heirs to the throne. It's time to act like royalty, to invite your neighbors to the feast, to dignify each and every person with the compassion of Jesus. So as we end this liturgical year and prepare for yet another, I find myself drawn to a prayer we often say at the end of evening prayer, which I believe sums this morning up well. O God, you manifest in your servants the signs of your presence. Send forth upon us the spirit of love that in companionship with one another, your abounding grace may increase among us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May we see this prayer answered in us now and in the year to come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.